Thank you, Glenn. Thank you, guys, for leading us into worship this morning. Thank you, guys, for braving the, the roads and, and being here this morning. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke. We're going we're gonna to run right into the passage, and I want to uh, give you a heads up at the, at the end. My, I'm going to get through this pretty quickly, I think, and I want us to spend some time in prayer for our community today. Uh, that's just where my heart's at right now. And so, open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14 is where we're at today. And if you've not been with us, we've been walking through the whole book of Luke, kind of passage by passage, verse by verse. And today, we've come to the point where Luke is going to be talking about the beginning of Jesus' ministry, his first sermon that's recorded. We're going we're gonna to see that today. And what you're going to notice right away in the text is that some people delight in Jesus, while other people, they detest Jesus. Luke, really, he gives us a snapshot of what the normal ministry would be for, for Jesus. The rest of his life would be like that. Some would love him, some would, some would hate him. In, in fact, I can't think of anyone that Jesus encounters in the Bible that is just kind of lukewarm towards him. I can't think of anybody that just meets Jesus and then walks away and is like, yeah, he's pretty cool. I mean, I, I think he's probably a good teacher, but you know what? I'm going to just kind of admire him from afar. He's not really going to have a whole lot of impact on my life. Now, unfortunately, in our culture, we see that all the time, don't we? We see all sorts of people that are just kind of lukewarm towards Jesus. But I think the only reason that we have that in our culture is because they've never really spent the time to get, get to know Jesus. Because if you get to know Jesus, if you really get to know him and get to read the Bibles, if you read about what he claimed about himself, there is no room for you to be indifferent about him. You are either going to passionately love him or you're going to passionately hate him. And this text gets to the heart of why that is. We're going to see in this passage why people will either accept him and love him, or why they reject him. Let's pray one more time. We're going to dive in. Father, mm, we thank you that you have given us hope in the midst of floodwaters, that you have given us joy in your word that no matter what is happening in our lives, we can see your faithfulness. I pray that as we walk through this text, you would help us to focus our whole hearts and our whole minds on every word, and we would walk away from here on fire, passionately in love with you. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, starting in verse 14, chapter 4 of Luke, starting in verse 14, and Jesus returned. He's coming from the wilderness. He's just been tempted by the devil, and Jesus returned from there in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. 
And so the Spirit has already played a significant role. I'm going I'm to read a little bit, talk a little bit, read a little bit, talk a little, little bit as we're going through this. The Spirit has played a huge role in the Gospel of Luke already. The Spirit filled John the Baptist from the time that he was conceived in his mother's womb. The Spirit came upon Mary. She became pregnant as a virgin with Jesus. The Spirit filled Elizabeth with, when she saw Mary. The, the Spirit uh, filled John the Baptist's father and he prophesied. The Spirit was upon Simeon and told him that one day he would see the Messiah before he died. And then we saw the Spirit descending like a dove on Jesus at his baptism. And then right from there, the Spirit fills Jesus and he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And so here we see Jesus returns in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And the people were very quick to notice there was something different about this guy. There's something special about him. He's being glorified by all. They love his teaching. And news about him spread throughout the whole countryside very quickly. Again, Luke is emphasizing that what happened in the life of Jesus was not done in a corner. This was not done in secret. Everybody knew Jesus. Everybody knew what was going on. And Jesus was loved by all. But then he comes to his hometown, Nazareth. Look at verse 16. He came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And so Luke here is implying that the ruler of the synagogue invited Jesus to to read and comment on the scriptures, which was kind of a normal thing in the synagogue on a Sabbath. They would do that. And so we're about to read the first recorded sermon of Jesus. And it's short. It's barely a couple paragraphs long, but man, is it powerful. Verse 17, "And and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolls the scroll And he found the place where it's written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll And he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. I want want you to just imagine this moment. No doubt the the people had heard about him. The people in the synagogue, they, they, they knew there was these rumors going around. Maybe they were even whispering to one another about some of the rumors they had heard about this, this boy who had grown up in their, their own hometown and now has become really popular, been, been healing people. And Jesus stands up and he's given this scroll, the, the book of Isaiah, and he scans through all the words until he finds this passage, the passage that he wanted. And everybody's leaning in, waiting to hear What is Jesus about to say? And of all the passages that he could have chosen, he reads this one. And he reads it in such a way that makes it sound like he's talking about himself. I mean, can you imagine being one of those those people? I mean, you grew up with this kid. And now, what what does this mean? What is he saying? What is he claiming about himself? I imagine their eyes were widening as he read this passage, and people were wondering what in the world and Jesus finishes reading, and he just sits down. Dramatic pause, right? <laughs> he just sits down, and all eyes are fixed on him. Nobody's even blinking at this point. And then verse 21, and he began to say to them, Today, 
today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Drop the scroll, right? Walk away. He said, I'm the one Isaiah prophesied over 600 years ago about. I'm the long-awaited Messiah. And all, it's interesting here, verse 22, look at it. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Okay, this is kind of a really interesting verse here. In fact, it's kind of confusing because it's initially they were very impressed, it seems like, in what he had to say. But then they asked this question, is not this Joseph's son? And so you might think, well, maybe they were just like they were impressed. Gosh, this is, this is Joseph's son. I mean, he's, he's saying all these things, but that's not how Jesus takes it at all. In fact, Jesus takes it as they're questioning, how could you be the Messiah? You're just a carpenter's son. They were doubting him. And so this is what Jesus responds by saying, verse 23, and he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in our hometown as well. And so Jesus accuses them of wanting to see a sign, just like just like Satan did last week in the wilderness. Remember, he tempted Jesus, like, show, prove to us that you're the Son of God. Prove it. If you're this great physician, show me. Well, Jesus would hear the same proverb, the same accusation when he was on the cross, where they would say, look, you, you've saved others. Why don't you save yourself? In verse 24, he says, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Now, I'm, I'm sure it wasn't easy for them to, I mean, if you grew up with Jesus, you saw him, I mean, it would be pretty difficult to come back to your own town and convince, like, your, your old teacher that, that you're the son of God, okay? I can imagine their familiarity with Jesus was a barrier, but you know what? I don't think their familiarity with Jesus was the ultimate reason that they ended up rejecting him because Jesus' own brother, James, trusted in him as Savior, ended up leading the Jerusalem church. His own mother Mary was very familiar with her son, treasured him, trusted him as Savior. And so they were very familiar with him. So it wasn't that they were familiar. That wasn't the reason that they rejected Jesus. I also don't think they rejected him because he refused to do miracles before them. I don't think that was the primary reason that they, they rejected him because there was lots of people that saw Jesus do miracles and still rejected him. The Pharisees, they never questioned his miracles, but they still rejected him. And so if the presence of miracles was not enough to convince people of who Jesus was, I don't think the absence of miracles would be enough to cause them to reject him either. And so why did they reject him? What was going on here? They rejected him for the same reason that people reject Jesus today. And Jesus gives two illustrations next that really get to the heart of why they actually rejected him. Look at verse 25. He says, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three, and six, three years and six months. And a great famine came over the, all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, none of those widows, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there, was a, a, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. 
So in Elijah's day, let me give you a little background here. In Elijah's day, the, the two prophets here, and it's kind of confusing because one is Elijah, and there, then there was Elisha that came after Elijah. But in Elijah's day, that first story, the Israelites, they were very rebellious. You can find the story in 1 Kings chapter 17. And for three and a half years, there's this se- severe drought, famine throughout the land. There were many widows in Israel that could have used help in that time. Many people. Many people that could have used help. Many widows. But Elijah went to none of them. Instead, he goes to this widow in Zarephath, the land of Sidon. This woman would have been a Gentile. If you know any history of the, the Jews, they hated the Gentiles. So this would have been very offensive for, for these uh, people in Nazareth to hear. But Elijah, she, he finds this widow, and she's, this is what she's actually doing. She's gathering sticks to kindle a fire so that she could bake a meal for her and her son. And she put it this way. She said that we may eat it and die. Evidently, this was, this was her last meal that she was preparing. This was the last food that she had in her possession. And Elijah does the unthinkable. Listen to what Elijah does. He says, do not fear. He says to this woman, do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterwards, make something for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day of the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Isn't that amazing? He asks for them to share their last meal with him. That's pretty bold. And amazingly, the starving woman obeys Elijah, and for as long as the famine endured, she had flour and she had oil. And so why did she trust Elijah? She did not demand a sign from him. This Gentile woman was not an Israel, didn't, didn't, didn't grow up knowing the stories about God's faithfulness, but she trusted Elijah. In spite of all that, why did she trust him? Because she realized her own poverty. She understood her own, she, she was absolutely poor. The worst that could happen to her is that she would die maybe a day earlier if she shared this meal with him. And it's possible that if, if her barrel would have been full of flour, she had plenty of food, that maybe instead of putting her trust in God in that moment, she trusts in that barrel. You see, Jesus was trying to teach the people of Nazareth a very important, a very significant lesson. Listen to me very carefully. The true reason that they rejected him was because they didn't look at themselves as spiritually poor, captive, blind or oppressed. That's what he preached on from Isaiah, right? That's who the good news was for. But they didn't think they needed it. They looked at themselves as good, respectable, synagogue-attending, family-oriented, solid citizens of Nazareth. They didn't need that message. They didn't need the good news. They didn't look at themselves like that. And so the second illustration just drives home the same point, right? Naaman, uh, a Gentile with leprosy, was cleansed by Elisha instead of the rebellious Israelites of his day. And Jesus was making the point to the Israelites of Nazareth, you need to see yourself. You need to see yourself as, as spiritually helpless, as, a, as helpless as a widow, as hopeless as a leper. And if you don't humble yourself and see yourself as spiritually poor, captive, blind, and oppressed, then God's going to go to those people who do, even if that means he goes to the Gentiles. And the crowd, of course, was offended by this, as you can imagine. 
verse 28, when they heard these things, all the synagogue, they were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they and, and drove him out of the town and, and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Now, personally, that makes me feel a little pretty good that Jesus' first sermon, they wanted to throw him off a cliff. Makes me feel like I can mess up once in a while. And, no, I'm kidding. He wasn't messing up here at all. But it's significant. I kind of get this picture of, uh, it, it's like one of those Looney Tunes or cartoons where like they're all fighting and Roger Rabbit just kind of sneaks out while the bad guys are, are still fighting and he just kind of sneaks away out of the dust. But why did Luke write this? What's going on here? Luke was giving us the details of Jesus' first sermon here so that first of all we would know what the gospel is from the lips of Jesus himself and so that we would know who the gospel is for and we would know how people would receive it. Some would receive it like they did in Galilee, open arms. But other, other people, when they hear the gospel, they're going to receive it like the people in Nazareth, a cold reception. Listen again to the gospel from the lips of Jesus. Again, he's quoting Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news, which, which that's gospel. He's pointed me to proclaim the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and, he, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And I think a lot of us, we read this, especially people in our culture, we, we read this, and I've heard sermons preached like this. We read this and say, okay, I know what I want. I know what God's trying to get me to do in this passage. He's trying to get me to be like Jesus and go and reach out to the poor and the helpless and the oppressed to fight for justice. And look, we should do, do those things, but that's not his main point here because you also have to listen to the warning that he gives to the, the, the Israelites that there will be many people in Israel, there, there was many people in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha and yet none of them were clean. There were many widows in Israel during the great famine, but Elijah helped none of them. Instead of Elijah and Elisha, they went and they healed and helped people that were humble enough to recognize that they needed help. The primary reason that people reject the message of Jesus is not because they haven't seen a miracle. It's because they don't think they need it. They look at themselves as good, respectable citizens. And if you think of yourself that way, there's no, you, you don't think you need to repent of sins. You don't think that you need to, there's no need to ask for forgiveness. There's no need to rely fully on Jesus for your salvation or follow him as, as Lord. You don't, you don't see yourself that way. You're, you're good enough without him. You see, spiritual self-reliance is deadly and it leads people to reject Christ. But we also know that spiritual self-reliance, it's not just a problem for unbelievers, is it? It's a problem for every one of us. And I'll tell you what, over the last few days, I've come face to face with the reality of how much I still struggle with spiritual self-reliance. Floodwaters threatening to destroy a building that you've worked on for over a year pouring your physical and emotional energy into will cause you to be reminded how poor 
and captive and utterly helpless you are. There is absolutely nothing I could do. I was waking up in the middle of the night recognizing that there is nothing I can do to stop the waters from rising. All I can do is try to limit the damage and plead for God for mercy. I think I've spent more time in prayer over the last few days than maybe any other time in my life. I've spent sleepless nights praying and pleading with God, looking for Him to answer, for answers, begging for wisdom. And it's in those moments as I'm praying that this passage, that, that specifically the sermon, that quote from Isaiah, it became precious to me this week. Because the greater you see your need for the gospel, the more precious it becomes to you. This week, I needed to hear about a God who pours out his mercy on the poor, on the captive, on the oppressed. And because I was reminded how poor and how captive and how blind and how spiritually oppressed I really am, it became precious to me. God has been teaching me a whole lot about relying more on him. And you know what? I'm thankful for the flood. I'm thankful that our building right now is being flooded. And I know, first of all, that the, the flood damage is not going to be irreparable. In fact, we may, be, we may come out ahead after it's all said and done. But as I've, as I've asked this question, I've asked this as, what if, what if I were this utterly dependent on God every single day of my life? What if I lived every day of my life as if there was a flood threatening my very soul? Not that would cause me fear or worry, but that it would bring me to my knees on a regular basis with an utter dependence on him. As I was asking that question, it dawned on me that, you know what, that's how Jesus lived every single day of his life. Every single day of his life, he was that dependent on his heavenly father. In fact, in John 5, 19, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Jesus spent many sleepless nights on his knees fellowshipping with his father. He prayed passionately, even sometimes pleading with his heavenly father, will you take this cup away? But not my will, but your will be done. He prayed so passionately, he swept blood in the garden. Jesus lived every day as if his very life depended on it, as if there was a flood threatening to destroy his own soul. And it didn't cause him to be scared, it didn't cause him to, to worry, but it did bring him to his knees often. It caused him to be fully dependent on his heavenly Father. And the time he spent in the wilderness that we talked about last week prepared him for a life of rejection that he would experience right away in Nazareth. A life that he would have to rely fully on his heavenly father for strength. But that at the end of the day, three days later, his heavenly father proved his faithfulness as he was raised from the grave. 
I love that we serve a Savior that was willing to go through what we go through. That he can empathize with us. Jesus became weak and he became needy to save us. And because of that, he knows what we're going through right now. And you know what? That's true of us also. When, when we recognize our own spiritual poverty, we become able to better help those who are poor, who recognize their own poverty. It makes us better evangelists. Uh, you know, I have no disappointments that we got that building, that we bought that building. I have no disappoints, disappointments about it. First of all, like I said, we're going to come better. We're going we're gonna to get, God has proven his faithful to us, faithfulness to us before. I mean, think about the trailer. After it was stolen, we got a new sound system and we don't have to take things in and out of a trailer anymore. God has been faithful to us before. He will be faithful to us through this situation also. But more than that, it's opened up so many conversations that I've already had. People have come in droves to the building this week just checking on us, and, and many of them have shared memories that they've had from 97 when it flooded, even worse than what we're seeing today. And you know what? Now I know their pain, and I can emphasize with them like I would have never been, be, been able to before. And because I can relate to them, because we can relate to them now, I think it's going to be an amazing opportunity for us to be able to share the gospel with them. And my prayer is that as we go out even today to minister to a broken community, we would remember our own brokenness, that we're spiritually poor and helpless. Because if we get that, the gospel is going to be precious to us. And if the gospel is precious to us, we're not... We can't help but share it with people. And so I want to spend some time this morning as broken people praying for a broken community. There's some people out there that don't know the Lord. And their lives are being devastated right now because they are losing everything, all they know to them. They are losing their heart and their soul. But because of Christ, we don't, we don't grieve like those who have no hope. We have a Savior that has proven his faithful to us, faithfulness to us. And we have a message that is good news to the poor, to the captive, to the oppressed. And so I would love for us just to spend a few moments. Uh, if you would get together with, with just a handful of people, just two or three people that are around you, even if you don't know each other, nobody's going to, Nobody's going to force you to pray out loud, but I would encourage you to, to spend some time in prayer with the people around you, specifically for our community that is hurting. Um, I, I would pray for, for wisdom as we move forward with the building, that, uh, that God would strengthen us through it, but even more than that, that God would use us in the midst of this to be able to have empathy with those who are hurting and to be able to share the good news that there is a Savior who loves them no matter what's going on in their life, that we'd be able to share that good news even better because of what we're going through. And so would you spend just uh, three or four minutes 
with the people around you. You can move your chairs if you want to, and then I'll close this in prayer, and then we'll, we'll uh, celebrate communion together after that. Okay, so go ahead and get with people.